Welcome to the OKC Community Podcast. We are so glad you're here. For more information about us, please visit our website at okccommunitychurch.com. To begin uh, this morning, even as they're doing that, I want to read a passage, and it's kind of lengthy. I'm going to read most of Daniel 3, Daniel chapter 3, and I'm going to, so I'm just going to read through a pretty lengthy section. It's, it's lengthy enough that I, uh, I just kind of, just so you know, if you're following along in your Bible, I took a few repeated verses out just to kind of shorten it up, but it's the same thing. So here we go. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, set it up on the plain in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messengers to the high officers and to all the provincial uh, officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. Then a herald shouted out, people of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, whatever that is, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground and worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. So at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever race or nation or language, bowed to the ground and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of you, or excuse me, but some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the musical instruments. And those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace. There are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Nebuchadnezzar was so furious that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. 
So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, Look! Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out here. Come here. So they stepped out of the fire. Then the high officers and officials crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He has sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather to serve or worship any god except their own. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that as we gather today, that, Lord, today is um, one of those times that for many in the room, that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would meet them in a way that they need to encounter. I know some are probably walking in with a lot of things going on in life, a lot of heavy things, a lot of new things, a lot of challenging things, a lot of maybe good things. There's just there's so much that happens in life week to week, and I just pray that as we have a conversation today and as we talk about your word and as we even talk about this idea of worship that seems so common in church, but Lord, I think there's some uncommon things about it today that, Lord, you want to speak to us. There's things that you want to show us. And Lord, I, I, so I just pray you would meet us wherever we're at. Pray for each and every one of us that, Father, Lord, we would encounter more of you and more of your spirit today. So we invite your Holy Spirit right now. Would you just come into this room? Holy Spirit, come. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, the story of Daniel 3 is all about worship. Um, it's about who do you submit to, who do you worship, and we started this series called Revival Starts Within four Sundays ago in the book of Daniel. Uh, we looked at Daniel chapter 6 that particular week, and Daniel, if you remember, even if you weren't here, you might know the story. Daniel had a similar situation to the one we just read. He was commanded by the king to only pray to, to the king himself. Uh, and yet Daniel was caught praying three times a day to, to his God, which resulted in him being thrown into the lion's den, in which we know the story. Daniel was saved from the lion's den. And in this story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they were, they were of course, saved from the fire. And we have Daniel committing to prayer, and we have these three men committing to worship. So we have prayer and worship, which I've said before, prayer and worship, they're like best friends. They like to hang out together all the time. That's what they do. And the strange thing is for me, and I don't know about you, but the story of Daniel and the story of these three men that we kind of are really familiar with from the book of Daniel is, uh, one, is we've always, we've kind of grown up marveling at Daniel for his courage and his faith. You know what I mean? Like we've marveled at Daniel for what he's done. We've also been inspired, if you will, inspired by the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their, their unwavering focus and commitment to God, willingness to lay down their life. And we should learn and be encouraged by the stories of these, of these individuals. But what's more impressive 
than them is the God who saves. What's more impressive than what they've done is the God who does the miraculous, that there is a God inside the story who rescues, who saves, who changes the hearts of self-centered kings. And it's from these stories, stories like this, that we realize that we have a God who's worthy to be praised. It's him alone that we should receive our, our worship and our praise. And, and we talk so much in, in today's world, and I, am, I talk about it just as much, as I want to be a person of courage and faith and, and, and commitment and to be people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But, bef- but before that, and, and more than that, I want myself, I want us in this room to be people who live in awe and wonder of our God. People who long to praise him more and to worship him more because it is he alone that is worthy of our absolute faith, our absolute trust, our holistic commitment. It's only him alone. So that's what we're going to talk about today. You guys okay with uh, talking about some worship, talking about the one who's the only one that's worthy to be praised, (laughs) talking about the Lord and all those things and how he is so good. I started going to church when I was 14. I don't know what time, when you started going to church, maybe you were born in church. So a lot of people say they were born Christian. I don't know how that happens, but I was born again a Christian. But, um, but nonetheless, I started going to church when I was 14 years old. The church we went to was somewhat of a traditional style, which, you know, I think most churches were then. And uh, when I, my first encounters with worship, though, were in this church that I started attending. And in terms of congregational worship, we used the hymn book. Anybody grow up using a hymn book? Yes, most of us did. If we went to church any time before, you know, 19, well, before 2000 or so, we probably had a hymn book and not a screen. And I started, you know, we used the hymn book and I, I loved it. I mean, I, it's, how I, it's how I started to be, you know, introduced, if you will, to worship. And my teenage years were filled with hymns and I had a lot of great memories with hymns and all that kind of stuff. But the music director, how they would lead a hymn, right? They would lead us in the first, second, and fourth stanza, right? And... Uh, we would skip that third one. Who knows what mysteries are hidden in those third stanzas? I'm thinking about doing a worship night called Third Stanza. Nobody will know the words, but it'll be like new discoveries about God, right? And uh, I don't know, but there's something about that. But when I was about 18 or 19, so my, my worship journey began with hymns. When I was at 18 or 19, I started listening to Christian bands. Uh, DC Talk, Audio Adrenaline. Creed. <laughs> they weren't really Christian, but kind of. Um, I also started listening to a band named Delirious, and, uh, who, who was out of England. And they sort of felt like a Christian version of U2. And, uh, but when I started listening to the lyrics of these songs, like it was touching my life in a new way, and I was starting to understand worship in a new way, and understand the heart of God in a new way. And I started listening to them nonstop, and by the way, if you, if you have a vague memory of Delirious off of, like, K-Love, um, that's not what I'm talking about. There's Delirious, like, when you listen to their live albums of Worship Nights, they were like, you know what I mean? And uh, the interesting side note to this whole Delirious kind of story is they were actually at the center of this kind of significant revival that took place in England during the 90s. They were kind of the one of the, they were like the worship band inside of that, and it sparked a few things, that 90s revival in England sparked a few things that we're familiar with today. Out of that revival came 24-7 prayer movement, 
and Alpha, which are still having um, the, the, the embers of revival blowing through the world today that are affecting not only the world, but even our church. And at the time, though, I didn't know any of that. At 19 years old, I didn't know any of that. I just uh, liked Delirious, and I knew that their songs were different. And years later, I realized why they were different, because they were songs of revival. These were songs that were cries of people who longed for more of God. You know, when Christy and I, we started in ministry in 1998, and I was actually a worship leader along with Christy. That's what I did, and I sang a lot of songs. I was, so, I was better than Stephen. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> so about four or five years I did that, and... Uh, <laughs> I did more delirious songs than any other type. Some of you were with me back in those days as students, and you remember those days probably, but I didn't totally get why at the time, but these songs, they spoke to me. And, 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 and it's funny, so many years later, I can kind of look back and go, why? These were songs of revival. These were songs of people who long for more of God. And the first song I ever heard by them was a song called Sanctify. And I saw it on a video of them leading worship at this huge venue. And anyway... I'd sing it for you, but I know I'd just have to do it in a British accent. It might get a little awkward. Then you guys wanted to speak in British accents. It would just be weird. So I'm just going to read them, and I have them on the screen. And these are just parts of that song. It says, here I am in that old place again, down on my face again, crying out, I want you to hear my plea. Come down and rescue me. How long will it take? How long will I have to wait? And all I want is all you have. Come to me, rescue me. Fall on me with your love. And all you want is all I have. Come to me, rescue me. Fall on me with your love. In 1997, those were some different lyrics, I'm just saying. All I want is all you have. And all you want is all I have. It's been 20 years ago, you know, I don't tell you the story of Delirious so you'll run home and Spotify Sanctify, that's not what this is about. I, um, it's more about the fact that, it's not even really about the music, is it? I mean, I think we know that whether it's 90s, whether it's hymns or 90s Delirious or, or Stephen and a song he writes or, or Hillsong or whoever, like, it's about the, the heart that cries out for more of God. And... I realize that for some of us, music isn't the way we even truly worship best. For some of us, music is the only way we worship. And I just want us to talk about Daniel chapter 3, because I think something really interesting is alive in the story that we, we are f- so familiar with the story, by the way. Most of us that have grown up in church, we, we know the story. Um, but we have this earthly power in King Nebuchadnezzar that's actually commanding people to worship in a particular way. And he's commanding them to worship, of course, and bow down uh, to his kingdom in so many ways. And obviously, the methods of someone commanding or demanding you to worship in a specific way, that's very unfamiliar territory for us here in, the, in America because you've grown up with the almost the inalienable right to worship however and whoever you want. And we feel like not only do we deserve that right, but every person does. And so we don't really understand a story like this to some degree of someone, we we get it intellectually, but we have not had to live under the regime of a government, for example, like China, that has outlawed religion for decades now and 
outside of the government-sanctioned church, you're not allowed to you know, have any sort of faith. And, you know, it seemed for years that, uh, you know, Christianity was dead in China. But, of course, uh, we learned about the underground church that had begun there. And maybe a decade or 15 years ago, it seemed like, oh, they're opening up to the West. More people are coming in. Maybe this sort of whole thing is over. And then really in the last year, even in that country, things are changing. And then Christians, once again, are fighting for their lives. And the underground church is flourishing under a... Uh, a huge persecution that's taking place. And so a story like this in Daniel 3, which seems like an ancient story, um, is actually a very present tense story in our world in which there is a government or some sort of earthly influence commanding that you worship in a certain way. Of course, happens in other places besides China, but we read this story in Daniel 3 and, and, and maybe to some degree we get it, but I think we get it probably more than we realize, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. It's a story in Daniel 3 about worship, but it's about who you worship and why you worship. And the idea of worship has always been accompanied by a thought if you really dig underneath the surface. And the surface of worship is, who do you put your hope in? Where does your hope lie? What do you put your hope in? There's a, there's a verse in Galatians 4, 6, 4, 6 that says that we are children of his God, of God, and we are prompted to cry out, Abba, Father. I mean, there's a, there's a cry from within those who follow Jesus, who are children of God, that says, Abba, Father. And there's, a, there's an instinctive sort of understanding when, in this cry that our hope is in our Heavenly Father. This is where, this is where worship begins, meaning it's who, it's what, it's where you put your hope. There's a book... Um, called The Real American Dream, which captured my thought just to hear that, right? The Real American Dream, it's by a guy named Andrew Delabancu, and he describes American culture that has had three distinct eras of, if you will, time in which our culture has put their hope into something. Uh, this happens with many cultures, but he, he, he dissected the history of American, American civilization, and, and he kind of describes it this way, and I'll put it on the screen here. But he talks about three distinct eras where there's God, nation, and self, that cultures by and large put their, their hope in these things. Um, but American history has a very kind of clear, uh, clear history of how this has worked. Every culture has, its, has a heart uh, aligned around its main home, meaning the culture, the members of that culture, tells the other members what's most important. So DeBanco describes that the three phases of American civilization have been these eras of time that were defined by their fundamental hope of that era. Stay with me for just a second. So the first era, hope was chiefly expressed through the church and through the Christian story that gave meaning to all things good and bad. So culture told its members to put your hope in God. So this is an American history kind of lent. This is pretty simple stuff, but in American history, there was this era in which people put their hope primarily in God. That was the first era of American civilization. Then the second era came along, and it was the age of the Enlightenment, which ushered in this kind of new era where people began to see the nation itself and the system of government that we had as, as the way of life that would be the ultimate hope to the world. Does this make sense? And so there was a season and a time in our history, believe it or not, where the culture shifted and began to tell its members that our way of life and governance 
is so good that everyone in the world should be experiencing this system of, of government called a democracy. And so you can see shades of Americanism sort of rising up within our culture that believe that America is the model and the hope to the world, not only in government, but in the way of living. And so the second era, and you could probably think back now to times whenever these new rises and like the hippie movement and things, like some things began to change in the 1960s where this understanding of our hope as in our nation began to change, where people started to see flaws within the government and flaws within the ways of our nation, and it ushered in a new era, and the era was the era of self. Our nation now, and I think you would agree, although this still has some shades of it, our nation now is less of a flag-waving nation that claims that you should put your hope in your nation, but now the culture tells one another that you should put your hope in yourself. Are you with me? So these days, life is about creating and maximizing, if you will, individual freedom. And so what's going on is we want to remove ourselves from the constraints of God and nation. Are you with me? And what we want to do instead is be able to give more to oneself because hope is primarily rooted in self. So back to the American dream. The American dream is all about trusting in yourself and your hard work and, the op and, 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 and your dreams and the opportunity that the nation provides for you is an opportunity, but don't trust the nation to give it to you. You have to go grab it. You have to go build it, dream it, create it. Does this feel real today, right? So the American dream is what you make of it. So what does this say of our culture and our times? What is this saying? We are not commanded by a tyrannical king. We're not under a communist regime. We're not under some ter terrorist group telling us what to do. But I believe our culture plays instruments of control that people bow down to here in America. Are you with me? We live in a culture that puts our hope in self. You can probably see this reality as I speak. American culture is free, yes. Yet that freedom has created a subversive type of command upon each of us. This is really critical to understand. Our culture has put a subversive, subterranean type of command on us that we feel the need to bow to because this is what culture tells us to do. And the cultural idol that we are all influenced to bow down to is not only ourselves, but to the power of the individual. So will we trust God more than ourselves? The question used to be, will you trust God more than your nation? Now the question is, will you trust God more than yourself? We've got to remember something. You know, the early Christians, the stories of Christians thrown into the lion's den or thrown into the Colosseum, they weren't thrown in because they worshipped Jesus. You understand that? It wasn't because they worshipped Jesus that they were thrown to the lions. It was because they would not worship the emperor. The emperor didn't care if they worshiped Jesus as long as they worshiped him, too. It's not just about worshiping Jesus. It's also about who you don't worship. So many people worship Jesus, and then they leave the church to worship other things throughout the week. 
So if these three guys, we'll just call them Shad, Mesh, and Abed for short. If they teach us anything, they teach us what they said in, in, in Daniel chapter 3, verse 18. We'll put that on the screen. Verse 3, verse, or verse 18. And they said this, We want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. It wasn't just about the fact that they worshipped God. It was about the fact that they would not worship his God or him or his kingdom or his statue. See, this is why the, way, the ways and the rhythms that we establish in our lives are so important. That's what we're talking about in these, in, these, in these weeks. We're talking about, you know, what do we do in our life week in, week out, month in, month out? What are the ways and rhythms of people who really, truly do long for more of God? What does it look like? And we have to live into these types of ways and rhythms that declare who we worship and who we do not worship. Living in the rhythms like the ones we talked about last week, Sabbath and solitude, they actually declare in a culture that tells us to bow to other things. They declare in a culture that we actually live into a way and a rhythm that declares that we're, gonna, we're actually going to submit first, of course, to the Lord. And this is crucial in a culture of self-worship. So here's what I want to do. I want, I want to talk about ways and rhythms, and I'm, I'm not going to talk long today. We're going to spend some more time in worship, but I want to talk about ways and rhythms of people who want to praise more. If you were here for week one, I know I'm jumping back a few weeks. Um, you remember we talked about the fundamental ways and rhythms of people who long for more. They were, they're rooted in three things. And I would test you right now and say, who remembers what the three things are? But we don't need to single anybody out as a star student. So up here. <laughs> we pray more, we praise more, we know who we are. You guys remember that? Some of you weren't here. But here's the thing. Following Jesus cannot be absent of these three things. This is fundamental core followership. Like, I'm going to pray more <laughs> than I did last year. I'm going to pray more. I'm going I'm to continually increasing in my life of praying more, praising more, and knowing who I am. Because knowing who I am dictates everything about the choices I make. So, but I want to lean into, we're leaning into number two on that list. What are the ways and rhythms of people who praise more? So, I want these messages to be practical. I, want, I also want to acknowledge that whenever you get more of God, it becomes impractical and illogical. Things about revival are not normal. And when I say revival, I mean, when we, if we're seeking more of the Spirit and we're asking the Spirit to be poured out upon us, well, there should be some miraculous things happen. There's some supernatural things present and breakthrough happening that can't be explained. So a lot of impractical and illogical things happen. You guys know the story of Acts 2, right? Acts 2, we've talked about a lot. The, the, the church, the people, they're praying. But then what happens is the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit pours out on those people. And then something miraculous happens. They're able to start speaking in other languages to the people that are in the city. They start speaking in other languages to the people that are in the city. And something impractical and illogical occurs, right? But what were they doing in Acts 2? They were actually doing something very practical, were they not? They were in a room praying and praising. 
Acts 2, that's what all they were doing. And then God comes in and does something on top of that. Because what happens is whenever we get filled with more of God, it comes bursting out of us into the atmosphere around us. Are you with me? And this is what happened in Acts 2. They're doing something very normal, very practical. They're getting filled with more of God. And then, boom, it comes bursting into the world around them, changes the whole atmosphere, and things begin to get illogical, unnatural, but instead supernatural and miraculous. So ways and rhythms of people who want to praise more. I want to give you some practical thoughts on worship because our job is sometimes to do the practical and trust God for the impractical. Are you with me now? I want to give you some practical thoughts on worship with hopes for impractical realities of God to actually break through in your life. Here we go. First one is praise and rejoicing. Ways and rhythms of people who praise more. Praise and rejoicing. At the core of rejoicing is a person who is, of course, full of joy. Praise is often the overflow of the joy that we have in Jesus. When we delight in Jesus and rejoice in the goodness and the gift of God, it fills our hearts with praise. Rejoicing, though, is an everyday, everyday act. Rejoicing is actually the medicine for a person who is lacking joy, obviously. But when I say lack joy. I mean, what is a person who lacks joy? Well, often they complain, and so I would say, or I grumble. That's what I do when I lack joy, and so perhaps we could say rejoicing is the medicine for complainers. It's like the CBD for grumblers, right? (laughs) Anyone know someone who's a complainer or a grumbler? Is that person yourself? Okay, nobody does. Um, Cool. Well, I think we're done here then. If you guys are all great, I'm great, so... Let's go home. I find myself complaining a little too much, right? I complain about traffic instead of praising that I have a car. (laughs) I can easily grumble about bills instead of the fact that God has provided and continually takes care of me. I can easily complain about the heat outside instead of praising the fact that I get to live in 2019 where air conditioning is everywhere. I can complain about people in my life instead of praising and rejoicing in the friends that God has given me. You know, Psalm 118, 24 says, this is the day that the, we know this one, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Praising more is finding joy in every day. It's an everyday, so you want a rhythm? Every day rejoice. It's an everyday, and you're like, how do I do that? You begin with choosing to do it, and then it becomes something that you are. If it's an everyday of rhythm of seeing God in our day, in our provisions, in our care, in the people around us. And I wonder, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands to this, because I know you won't, um, because you don't ever. How many in here would say that they definitely need the joy of the Lord right now in your life? Life is... Oh, my God. You got me. Life is so busy, right? That for a lot of us, it doesn't feel very joyful. It's easier to get angry than joyful. It's easier to get tired than joyful. It's easier to get to feel bored or depressed or empty or 
or even just the heaviness of life, it's easier to get into that place than to feel joy. And I would say it's because, and we're going to go back to our hope frame for a second, it's because we're putting our hope in ourselves, and we are not worthy of hope. We will find ourselves um, becoming very empty when we put our hope in ourselves. There's only one that is worthy of our hope, and that's Jesus Christ. So every day rejoice. Rejoice and be glad in the Lord. And actually say these things out loud. Tell somebody, even if it's just telling yourself. The second one is this. Praise and song. You know, growing as a people and a church who loves to worship and praise God in song is, is so important. This is so important. Many of us do this, but many of us don't, don't connect well musically. I get it. And it's all about maybe style for us. Or we just don't, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe there's certain kinds of music. We don't, I get it. There's a lot of discussion around worship and music and styles. Um, but, so I'm certainly not commanding or demanding or even suggesting we worship all the same way. But what I do know is that in the scriptures, there's a lot of, there's a lot of teaching and a lot of encouragement around praising the Lord in song. And I'll just read a couple of verses out of, I mean, I could literally lead, lead, read you hundreds of verses about this, but Psalm 95, 11, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Ephesians 5, 19 says, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, delirious songs, <laughs> and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. Songs become the anthems and the cries of a heart and soul that longs for more. When, when God does a deep work within us, songs become the prophetic anthems of what we hope for. Do you understand that songs are often me and Stephen were talking about this week. They're a prophetic voice to what we long for. When we sing a revival, it's a hope for revival. Songs become the anthems and the cries of a heart that wants to say, Abba, Father, I put all of my hope in you. Songs are the cries of a heart that longs for more of him. So you may need to sing loud to the Lord. And some of you don't need to sing loud. You need to sing soft to the Lord. <laughs> but the Lord hears it. God loves a church who makes a joyful noise. God loves a church that makes a joyful noise. And lastly, we praise in gratitude. We praise in gratitude. I've said this before, and it's an Andy Stanley quote, and it's this unexpressed gratitude communicates ingratitude. Unexpressed gratitude communicates ingratitude, right? The other day, a friend um, gave Grayson, our, our, our five-year-old, almost six-year-old, gave him a, a bunch of toys that their son had quit playing with. So Grayson got like this whole new hall of toys, right? And what do we say to Grayson when he got this given to him? What do you say, Grayson? <laughs> and he's, you know, thank you, you know. That's right, you say thank you because unexpressed gratitude communicates ingratitude. And we say thank you for the things that we're grateful for. And when it comes to the Lord, we must continually express and live with a heart of gratitude. 
But a heart of gratitude should not be contained within oneself. So many people say, I'm grateful, but they don't really know how to express that gratitude. At some point, that gratitude actually, actually has to come out of us and be verbally expressed out loud. And so today, we, that's why we want to close in worship, is that we want to express some praise today. We want to praise and rejoicing. We want to praise in song. We want to praise in gratitude. And how we're going to do that today is we're going to sing some songs, of course, but we're also going to have our communion tables. They're on either side. There's one in the back and there's one up in the balcony. And, um, that we would come to the table and we remember what Jesus has done. I mean, this is an act of gratitude, right? This is an act of rejoicing. This is an act of praising to say, Lord, I remember you. This, this, this piece of bread represents the body that was broken for me. And, and, and I remember what you did for me on the cross and the, the fact that this juice represents the blood that, uh, that you spilled for us that gives us the grace that covers all of our sin. And so, Lord, we take this communion today in gratitude and in worship and in praise of you as the only one worthy of our hope. We're actually going to begin with a new song in just a moment, and it's one of those songs that I feel like is one of those that it's the cry of a heart that longs for more. So as we take communion, maybe these lyrics will speak to us in that way, but I want us to be a people, to be a church that would never withhold our praise. And I want us to be a church and a people who would never give our worship and praise to anyone other than God. And that's hard to do in a culture that plays a lot of instruments and calls us to bow down to a lot of things. And in our world today, it's perhaps to oneself. I love how the story ends in, in Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's in awe and wonder, is he not? He's like, what just happened? And then King Nebuchadnezzar says, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He goes on, he calls him the most high God. Do you know that our praise will actually make the world praise? The praise and the worship of these three men made this man that was far from him lift up the praise of, his, of their God. And so it'll come bursting out of us into the atmosphere around us. So I'm going to pray. We're going to worship. This altar is, of course, open, but the tables are open. And uh, we're just going to spend some time lifting them up, rejoicing in the Lord, praising in song praising and gratitude. Father, we pray that as we take some time over the next few minutes, Lord, that, Lord, this time of worship would be pleasing to you, that it would be, as the scriptures say, times of worship, almost like an, a sweet-smelling aroma lifted up to heaven of your people, giving you praise, giving you worship today. Lord, thank you. Thank you for being worthy not only of our praise, but the only thing worthy of our hope. And so, Father, may we be a people who long to praise you more, but also may we be a people who will never give our worship 
to anyone other than you. Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. If there's anything we can pray with you about, or if you have questions about God, we'd love to talk with you. Please visit our contact page at okccommunitychurch.com.